But as much as it's inevitable, I also know that most of us are going to do everything we can to prolong our life as long as possible, and to some extent, try not to die. In fact, it's what people have been doing for centuries. You know, whether it's from the 4th century BC when uh, there were stories of Alexander the Great searching for the fountain of youth so he could be regenerated over and over again, or if it's from the Middle Ages or the, where people would get blood transfusions from younger people so that they believed they could live longer or even sometimes drink blood, which amazingly these ideas still seem to persist with people. Or even in 2013 when Google launched a, uh, a biofirm tech called Calico, which whole purpose, its objective was to solve the problem of death. To Jeff Bezos doing something recently, investing money into some similar things. It's what we do. We try to avoid dying. But it's inevitable. It's going to happen. So why do we keep trying to avoid it? Well, as uncomfortable as this topic is, and that's part of why I think we try to avoid it, it's because we're scared. We, we have this uncertain reality about us of what comes next. Even those of us who maybe have a belief and are following God, we still have this uncertainty about us that we go, well, what comes next? And so we have a fear. And that fear sometimes dominates our thinking, and so we try to avoid the topic altogether, even to the point where people who we love, who we know have died, we don't actually want to say it. We say they've passed on or gone to a better place, and because this language scares us. So what are we so afraid of? That unknown. We don't need to be afraid, though. In fact, Because of Jesus, we can have complete hope and confidence in what is to come, so much so that you don't need to be scared today or ever. Because of Jesus, there is hope for a life to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, we do have a hope, and that we have a hope that's found in you. That through Jesus we can know, not just feel or sense or desire, but know for certain that there is something more to this life. And that as good as existence here is, there is something to come that is so much better. And I pray this morning, wherever we find ourselves online, uh, at home, uh, listening later on, or here in this building, Wherever we find ourselves spiritually wondering and questioning and uncertain about what we believe, we can walk away this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit with a hope that will not disappoint, a hope that shows us what is true and we can embrace it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're concluding our series on the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to be looking at this reality, death. By basically asking the question is, well, what happens when you die? Now, if you think to yourself right now, and and I would imagine most of us have known people who we love who've died, maybe we've been to funerals, and it's a hard topic to address at times, but a necessary one. But think to yourself, well, what does happen? Like, what do our beliefs say happens, or what do I think happens? 
Now, a lot of us, we have this idea that when you die, well, you go to heaven or somewhere else. But the reality of what the Bible teaches maybe is something a little bit different, and that language might be missing from the Bible quite a bit. In fact, the Old Testament, most of the time what it talks about is that you go to the grave or you go to be with your ancestors. The language of going to heaven doesn't really occur there. Another word that gets used over and over and over again is that you go to sleep, implying that you're going to wake up. But a lot of us, we think you die, you go to heaven. So where does that idea come from? if maybe it's not as clear in the Bible like that as some of us might think. Well, the reality is it actually comes up from some great thinkers in the past. Uh, people like Thomas Aquinas, who wrote extensive works for the history of the church that are really useful for us in our growth and our learning, actually got their ideas from Greek philosophy and started to incorporate it in the life of the church about going to heaven, about a spirit or soul leaving the body. And then after about a thousand years, it's just become what we talk and what we think. But the early church believed something different. And as we're in this series about the Apostles' Creed, as we're looking at what the early church was believing about these things, trying to get back to what Scripture says about it, what they said about what happens when you die is different. What they said is this, the last two lines. Who believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. And that word amen, it's easy to ignore because we probably say it a lot, but that amen word is so very important because it means we agree. So when we say the creed, we're saying we agree to these beliefs. And so for the early church, they were saying, this is what we believe, this is what we agree to, this is what we hold to. And what they hold to about what happens when you die isn't so much about what the immediate is, about where your body goes and things like that, but at some point, there is this hope of resurrection and eternal life. So where did they get that idea instead of just going off to heaven? Well, they got it from Scripture. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 as he's writing this letter to a church trying to figure out what they believe and who they are and correct some of their mistakes. He writes this in verse 20 of chapter 15. He says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die... So in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So Paul gives a bit of a timeline picture. Jesus is the first example of what we are to hope for. He is resurrected. So some of us, were very familiar with this. We know we go to church on Easter. We celebrate Good Friday. We lament that Jesus has died, but then we rejoice that he rose again. Paul's saying, that's what you have to look forward to. That's what's coming. So when the Old Testament talks about people going to the grave or Sheol or going to sleep, Paul's reminding them they're going to wake up and the dead will be alive. Jesus is the first example of that. And when he comes again, 
we too will experience it. It says, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that that does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. But when he has done this, then the Son himself will be subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God will be all in all. The early church held to this teaching that Paul passed on to them, that there will come a day, and we don't necessarily have that timeline, but there will come a day when those who are dead will rise, will be resurrected. What he doesn't say is those who died, their body decomposes and their spirit went off to be with God right away, which is sometimes what we actually believe. The biblical teaching around this is more around when you die, there's a waiting period. And now I'm not smart enough to know how long that waiting period is or what happens in between and all those things. But the picture is there's a waiting, a sleep, but you will wake up. And the hope isn't to go off to heaven, but to experience resurrection in a renewed earth. Paul also writes that Jesus is the answer in all of this. Because there is a problem, and that problem is that death exists. If you read, I was reading this week trying to, to learn more around kind of our fears around death and what people think about death, and it's really interesting when you look at some of the stuff people talk about, because for a lot of people, they think that death is an evolutionary advantage, that if a species dies, they will be better off than a species that doesn't, so that evolution made the point where we had to die at some point. And I thought that was a really interesting take on things, not necessarily what I would look at. Because the reality is that death enters the picture as an enemy. It's not well, the way things are supposed to be. And it's an enemy that needs to be defeated and is in Christ. It's not a good thing. But there's a greater hope that we can have in Jesus. Paul writes later on in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Verse 9, he says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, to be, to be separate, to be different. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel the good news. The good news is, is that there is hope after we die. Death is not going to defeat us. Christ has defeated it. It's a hope that is what we can embrace for ourselves. And so when the creed speaks about believing in the resurrection of dead, it's to believe that Jesus defeated death once and for all, that we don't have to fear it in Christ. That in Christ, there is a hope for something more, something better in time. It also says that we believe in life everlasting. 
And this might be more kind of up to speed of what a lot of us think about heaven or the future. is like, yeah, I'll live for eternity. Well, what does that life look like? What is it going to be like is, I think, something we need to be asking ourselves. And the Bible also kind of paints a picture of this. It doesn't give every single detail, but it gives you a picture of what is to come. And John on Patmos, while he was in exile, while he was imprisoned, he had this vision from God in the book of Revelation. In the end of the book of Revelation, it goes like this in chapter 21. He says, then, so he's getting these visions. He says, then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And we're going to pause there for a minute. A new heaven and a new earth. And so for a lot of us, when we've heard this in the past, or we've thought about this, we think, okay, well, the earth is destroyed, it's wiped out, and there's something new. But in the New Testament, which is what we call the section of the Bible, the stories of Jesus, life after the Old Testament, in the New Testament, there's two words that get used primarily in, in the original languages of Greek. And there's two words that get used for new, and one is neos, which means like it's brand new, like it's a brand new thing, like when you buy a brand new car, like it just came off the line, you pick it up, nobody else has ever driven it. It's brand new, it didn't exist before. And then there's another word that gets used, it's just kainos. And kainos doesn't mean like it never existed before, it means that it's changed its nature. So it's like you bought a used car that previously existed, but it's new to you. As opposed to something that never existed, it's something that's transformed, that's new in nature. And that's the word that gets used in the Bible repeatedly. So when Paul talks about you being a new creation in Christ Jesus in 2 Corinthians, he's saying you are a transformed nature. And that's the word that gets used here. The new heaven and new earth isn't necessarily this brand new thing that's like completely alien, but a transformed in nature made the way it's always supposed to have been, earth and sky. It's a renewing, if anything. It's making that which was decaying and not good new for us, the way God always intended it. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. And as the vision continues in Revelation 22, he says, Then the angel showed me the river of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve them. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the Lamb or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The picture that John is given 
is of everything being brought to the way it was always supposed to be. In fact, his vision is reminiscent of a vision that happens early on and earlier on in scripture in the prophet Ezekiel, where he sees a river flowing from the temple, bringing life, that place where God is. But John sees it coming right from God, that God is bringing new life, renewed life to all of creation. And it's a place where there's no more pain or suffering, or as the Bible talks about, curse, death, forever and ever. It is a complete renewing of everything that God started with in creation, making everything the way it was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden before people made decisions to go their own way. That's what John's vision is, is that this life everlasting is everything we need. Because this world is not the way it's supposed to be. This world is full of pain and suffering and sorrow. This world is full of our own struggles of do we do this or do we do that? And as we talked about sin, of this uncertain reality where we're not sure if we're doing the right thing all the time. This world is full of death and decay. It's dying. But in Jesus, there is hope for renewal, for a new life, for so much more, forever. This is the belief of the church. Throughout centuries, this is what the church has taught and believed because it's what Jesus taught us. To know with certainty that because of his death and resurrection, through the power of his blood, we are forgiven of our sins. And that in the forgiveness of our sins, there is hope for life in all of its fullness, now and not yet. But only in Jesus. The church has held on to this and believed it, and sometimes we lose sight of it. Because so much around us isn't good isn't the way we want it to be, even within our churches. But this is why we have things like the creed, to remind us of what really we should be believing and how it should influence how we act. If I believe in the resurrection of the body, and if I believe in life everlasting, it gives me a different perspective on life right now. Not that I can just give up on what's around me, but I can work with God in the hopes of renewal to bring goodness to the people around me, to creation that is groaning and waiting for us to demonstrate our love. That's what the church has believed for centuries. So we can be confident. And we can be confident in three things, I think. One is that our future is not in heaven, but a new earth. It's not about escape. It's not about running away from everything that's broken. It's about the work of God making things new. That's where our future is. Our future is a new Eden, as we read in Genesis, but better. There's no more chance of sin. There's no more chance of death. There is a river that flows from God and brings life, where the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations, 
where there's no more tears or sorrow or pain. Ultimately, our future is with God because He will live with us. That's what we can hope for. Now, by the blood of Christ, death has been defeated. That even though now we experience pain and sorrow and suffering, that things are decaying and things are not the way they're supposed to be, there is a hope for eternity, for a future. Not to escape, not to run away, but to be with God, where He makes all things new. Our future hope is better than you can imagine. This is what we believe. Maybe it's something that feels like a little bit of a stretch for you, but I would encourage you to look through Scripture. Look at what is taught about what is the life to come and evaluate it. Because this is what the church has believed for centuries. There is a hope to come, and that is the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. As we've been in the series on the creed, I want to end it with us reading it together. And so I would invite you that if you are someone who says, I'm you know, following Jesus, to recite it with us. I'd also invite you to stand uh, if you're here in person. It's an opportunity just for us to have some kind of uh, physical response to what this says we believe. Now, if you don't believe it, don't feel like you have to say it. This isn't something you just do for the sake of doing it. But if it is something you believe... I want to encourage you to say it with me. This is the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are uh, the God of this story, this creed and the God of our story. That you invite us through Jesus to know our forgiveness, to embrace it, and to live free. Free from the sorrow and suffering that we may experience and knowing that there is a hope of life and eternity with you so much better than we could imagine. Not as some disembodied soul, but rescued from the grave and awake and alive. I thank you that you give us this hope and this gift of resurrection and life and eternity. And I pray that we come to know this truth, that as we say amen in the creed, we are in agreement that it is true, that it is real, this is who you are, and we follow you. I just pray that for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now as you go, may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. God bless you.